we're going to uh, be studying some passages mostly in the pastoral epistles, but we'll start with our thematic verse, which is Acts 2.42. But first, we'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together again to open your word, to open our hearts to what you have to say, and to encourage one another in our faith and obedience. And we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. I'm going to make a distinction between two ideas. And you might think it's just not important or rather subtle, but it, actually it's a huge chasm. Not understanding this distinction cost me five years of my life in a false group that I joined, hoping to be more pleasing to God. True piety versus pietism. Just grammatically, piety is a state of being that we have, a quality that we may have. Pietism is a belief system. You can have the quality and reject the belief system. And it's also possible that the belief system doesn't actually lead to piety. And I spent five years in a commune trying to be more pious than ordinary Christians. And those were five very intense years. And I was warned about it by my teachers in Bible college, but I would not listen to them. I had to learn the hard way. Okay? So I am going to share with you this morning something that had I at least been willing to accept it when I was in my early 20s, it would have saved me a lot of misery and sorrow in learning the hard way, the long way, the painful way. There's two ways to learn. One is to just listen to what God said in his word. And the other one is to go out and get beat up. Well, I, I chose the beat up way, thinking I'd be a better Christian. Now, let's look at Acts 2.42. This is our theme. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Someone sent me a link to a sermon by John MacArthur about this that I listened to the other night. It's a fantastic sermon, 35 minutes long, and he was talking about this verse and how it should characterize the church. And I say amen to John MacArthur. It's exactly what it is. And the sermon's entitled, An Ordinary Church. You see, I like his choice of terms. Because the thing that gets us into trouble is our lack of willingness to be ordinary. What led me into a communal living situation was I would not be an ordinary Christian. I thought all ordinary Christians were tainted and no good. And I wanted to be an extraordinary Christian, so I joined this commune. Now, this inclination to do this goes all the way back to the very, very earliest days of church history. And we had the desert monks 
people who thought that ordinary Christians living in cities were tainted. So they went out into solitude, into the wilderness, and you can read about that in church history, what you can learn about them. Of course, if they're isolated from everybody, there's nothing to be written about because you don't know what they're doing. But some of these guys were eventually interviewed, and one of the things that they had in common was they ended up encountering the demonic. Now, if you read the New Testament, you'll notice here in Acts 2.42, the very birth of the church, one of the things they devoted themselves to was fellowship. And fellowship is only meaningful if you're around other Christians. It doesn't mean fellowships with the, fellowship with the wild animals in the wilderness, fellowship with the insects and the scorpions. It's, it's fellowship with other Christians. Uh, Dan, thank you for sending me that link. I'm already recommending MacArthur. Dan sent me a link to the sermon called An Ordinary Church. Absolutely fantastic. So they're devoting, as I've said before, the same word is used elsewhere in the New Testament for being devoted to prayer. And here prayer is one of the things that characterized the the very first church. They came together because of the gospel having been preached. They were saved. They were baptized. And then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Notice that already at the very beginning, you have the apostles' teaching. This became our New Testament. Don't be fooled by those who say, well, we really only have the Old Testament That's all they ever had, so we've got to get our entire religion out of the Old Testament. Not true. Already in Acts 2.42, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching came from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ's teachings are binding on the church, and his apostles' teachings are also binding on the church. You know what that means? We studied binding and loosing last time I taught. Now I'm going to quote MacArthur in his book, Faith Works, now republished as the Gospel According to the Apostles, but it said they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine. I went to the new KJV. One of the myths that's been popular in popular piety is that doctrine is spiritually harmful to Christians. The doctrine might lead someone to so-called dead orthodoxy. The doctrine is merely intellectual. It's simply Christians who have no real fervent faith and vital spiritual life, but instead they have doctrine. And there's all sort of versions of that. If you have doctrine, you'll dry up. If you have the Holy Spirit, you'll grow up, things like that. Okay? And so people are wanting to be delivered from doctrine. Well, not to fear. In the 21st century, doctrine has fairly well disappeared from the church. People don't concern themselves with doctrine. They just want to have an experience. 
But not so in the very earliest church. The word didache, that's translated teaching in a lot of our versions, can just as legitimately be translated doctrine. Now, one of the inroads of subjectivism, pietism, and spiritual air of all sorts is the genre of Christian literature called devotional books. Okay? There's more false teaching that comes to more Christians through devotional books than you can imagine. And this has been the case for 150, 200 years. The latest example would be Jesus calling. We've got the words of Christ and we've got the teaching of his apostles, but oh no, we need something different. So I wrote a review of that book. But here's what John MacArthur says. If you're inclined to think that doctrinal book is the antithesis of a devotional book, I hope to change your mind. They were devoted to the apostles' doctrine. True doctrine will enhance our devotion, not hinder it. Oh, yes. That took me five years in a Christian commune to learn that. I had learned doctrine in Bible college, and then I joined a group that devalued it every time they got a chance because it wasn't supposedly spiritual. I wrote an article for CIC about pietism some years ago. Pietism has existed throughout church history. I think you see an example of it in Colossians, Colossians 2. But one thing you'll notice about pietism is that it sees, quote, dead orthodoxy, quote, unquote, as the evil it is designed to cure. If you read the first trilogy published by Francis Schaeffer, Escape from Reason, God is there, and God is there, and he's not silent. I uh, quote those books quite a bit in my book on Emergent. He talks about this. And one of the founders of neo-orthodoxy that sees dead orthodoxy as the problem is a man by the name of Kierkegaard. And Schaefer does a fantastic job of rebuking Kierkegaard. Now, let me explain. In his thinking, the fact that people went to liturgical churches where creeds were read and confessed and liturgies were followed was the reason for dead orthodoxy. And the way to... Remedy the problem in order to find the life of the spirit was to disconnect spiritual life from orthodoxy understood with the intellect. And so when I was a new Christian, the Pentecostals used to say, it's better felt than telt. All right, and that was their version of the orthodoxy. Now, Thankfully, when I was in Bible college, I had teachers who did not believe that. My teachers had seen the damage of the latter rain movement wrecked upon the Pentecostal movement. And Reverend Phillips and Reverend Levang and Reverend Smith, 
warned me about that sort of approach. And they said, Bob, learn hermeneutics, learn the Greek, stay in the Bible. Don't go after, out after all these spiritual experiences. Now, when I was hosting a pastor's meeting in 1989-90-91, mostly charismatic pastors, which because that's the movement I had joined, they were often seeing themselves and their movement as the answer to dead orthodoxy. So I've mentioned this before, but one pastor was saying, yep, if you study doctrine, you're going to die spiritually. And I said, well, how do you know that? He said, well, I was a Lutheran and I was dead spiritually. I said, okay, why don't you explain to me what it was like when you were in that state that now you want to be cured from? And he said, well, we, did, we had creeds and we recited creeds and stuff in our literature. I said, well, like what kind of a creed? Name one. Well, Apostles' Creed, Nicaea, whatever. I said, okay, tell me what's wrong with that particular creed. Why do you reject that creed? Oh, no, there's nothing wrong with the creed. I said, okay, let me ask you another question. When you were reciting the creed, did you literally believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Oh, no, I didn't believe that. Aha! Now we're starting to understand the situation. What kills us is not the truth. Now, the creed may or may not be true, but if it is true, as it was when it pointed to the virgin birth, the sinless life of Christ and the resurrection, the real problem wasn't the truth or the doctrine. It was unbelief. And when I was in theological liberalism, that's exactly what I experienced. The pastors didn't believe the doctrines they taught to the young people. And one time I was in camp and I took my Bible to the pastor teaching the Bible class. And I said, I have questions. And in fact, I don't even know if I had an actual Bible. I just had questions. Anyhow, he said, well, you don't believe the Bible, do you? What? Well, I didn't, but I, that's what I was feeling guilty about. I said, well, I thought I was supposed to. Yeah, you're right. I don't believe the Bible, but I thought I was supposed to. And I feel really guilty about that. He said, well, the Bible's not literally true. It's just stories to inspire us. And so he was helping me with my feelings of guilt by telling me the Bible wasn't true. Well, it may have helped my guilt, but it scandalized me, and I made a vow in my heart to never go back to church once I got a chance not to. Because if it's not true, I don't know why I'm spending so much of my time doing this. Sunday mornings in Iowa were prime tea times at the golf course. <laughs> I've got some passages about unbelief. This, I want to key in on that because that's where we get confused. Brian's got the mic. Robin, do you want to read some passages? I want Hebrews 3, 17 to 19, and then, Mike, if you could read Hebrews 4, 2. I think the passage in Hebrews will really open your eyes to what the issue really is. 
Will the Bible and or sound doctrine derived from the Bible kill you spiritually? That's the question we want to answer. Hebrews 3, 17 to 19. Oh, take the mic. Is it on? Okay. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose body fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they are not able to enter because of their unbelief. They were not able to enter because of too much doctrine. (laughs) Oh, no, it doesn't say that. They were not able to enter because of unbelief. And so I told that pastor, your problem was unbelief. It wasn't the truth of the Christian doctrine. That's not going to kill you. How about Hebrews 4, 2, Mike? For we also have received the good news just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. Okay, they did not believe. They heard it, but they didn't believe. Can you imagine? Now, the people that I had at the pastor's meeting were saying, we need more miracles. If we had more miracles, people would have faith, and then we'd have an alive church. And so I look at this, and I say, well, I'd say those people saw miracles. They came through the Red Sea. I, wouldn't you call the party of the Red Sea a miracle? They heard the voice of God at Sinai, right? They were so scared. They said, Moses, you go talk to God. We don't want to. It's too much for us. They saw manna. The manna showed up to feed them. They saw the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Awesome rumblings and so on and so forth. And so according to the testimony of Scripture itself, especially here in Hebrews, recounting that incident, you can see endless miracles and die in unbelief. And yes, you can have creeds and die in unbelief too. Or you can go to an evangelical gospel preaching church and die in unbelief. That's what it says here. They did not profit them because they was not united by faith. So the issue is believing the truth of what God said. And believing would imply obeying, because you look at, for example, uh, what Robin read in verses 18 and 19 of Hebrews 3, they were disobedient, they died because of unbelief. So disobedience and unbelief are used in a synonymously parallel fashion. Wow. So, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we shall teach doctrine and not feel bad about it at all. And we shall realize that true doctrine will enhance, not harm, our devotion. And it's a crying shame that people write really bad books that are called devotionals. Everything from mysticism to extra-biblical revelations and what have you, what have you, are foisted upon the flock called devotional. We should be devoted to the apostles' doctrine. Now let's talk about how God sanctifies us. How does God bring change into our lives? How does God save us? 
How does God sanctify us? And how are we objectively different than we would be if we didn't have the gospel? 2 Timothy 2, 19b through 21. Okay, let me read 19a as well. It's just I don't like to have too busy a PowerPoint. That says, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. Then it goes to this. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware and some to honor and some to dishonor. All right. This is an illustration. You might have a beautiful vase of flowers and a commode. One is for honorable use, the other for dishonor. Right? Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, was dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now, here we realize that coming to Christ through the gospel by faith means our lives change objectively. And not everything we used to think, not everything we used to do is appropriate for our new life of faith. And that sanctification involves cleansing Here's that word in the red there, cleanses himself from these things. And I will show you from Scripture that the word of God is the means. Remember, we're commenting on Acts 2.42, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the word of God is what God uses to cleanse us and to sanctify us and to objectively tell us what is and isn't honorable. Do you believe that? Do you know what? Well, if you just have an ordinary job in the world, is there a lot of dishonor out there? It's very dishonorable. And that's how I lived. So this is part and parcel of sanctification. God's word expresses God's truth to sanctify God's people. Now, I've got some passages Brian, you got the mic. Could you do 2 Timothy 2.9? And then Dana, 2 Timothy 2.15. Now we'll go back to Nancy. 2 Timothy 2.9, 2 Timothy 2.15. And then 2 Timothy 2.17. Should I start at 8, Bob? Please do. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Amen. So it's the word of God that goes forth from Paul through the gospel. 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightfully, rightly dividing the word of truth. Yeah, or my version says accurately handling, which would be the meaning there. Accurately handling the word of truth. Let me talk about the Bible. We'll get to this a little later. I don't know if today or next week. The biblical doctrine of inspiration 
tells us how we got the Bible and something about the nature of the Bible. But there are those who erroneously think that since the Bible has a supernatural source, therefore it must mean something other than what it actually says. In other words, there's a secret meaning to the Bible to be determined by the clever reader. And so inspiration in their mind is what happens once when the reader reads the Bible, which is simply a fancy way of saying the reader determines the meaning. Now, I was greatly privileged when I got to seminary in 1992. One of my first professors was Dr. Robert Stein, who has since written, I think, the best book out there on hermeneutics. It's simple but powerful. And he was the one who convinced us that the author determines the meaning. And that not only is that true for the Bible, it's true for any kind of written communication, including the Constitution or a letter you send to your cousin. And you wouldn't like it if somebody took what you wrote and determined their own meaning. Let's see, I'm thinking about cars because Brian showed up with a different one today. <laughs> Let's say your cousin found a car and you wrote him a letter and say, I like the, your description, buy the car and I'll pick it up from you when I get a chance to get there. And the cousin gets the letter and, and he decides his own meaning. And he decides buys the car to him means sell a car. So he sells a car. And you call him, where's my car? Well, I sold, I didn't buy. Why? Well, because that's what your letter meant to me. <laughs> Or the banker, you have $10,000 in your bank account and you get there and the banker won't give you your money. Why not? It says 10000 To me, it says nothing. You don't have any money. You'd sue the banker, wouldn't you? And in, in the book I wrote about emergent, I pointed out the absurdity of their beliefs that the reader determines the meaning of the scripture. That if you, this was the case... You couldn't have human commerce. You couldn't have civil law. You couldn't prosecute a robber because the meaning would be as many as people thinking. And so you bring the robber to trial and he says, well, to me, robbing is the same as giving. That's my reality. That's how I read the law. Well, you wouldn't tolerate that. So why do we do it with the Bible? Well, because the Bible's a special book. So they're saying they're elevating it in the process of just destroying its meaning. So we can't know what God said. Same thing is done with the U.S. Constitution. It's a living document, so it doesn't mean what it says. We're not concerned with the author's intent. We're not even thinking about that. It's what it means to us. And this is an attack against all human commerce, all meaning, and so on. And so when I studied under Dr. Stein, he demonstrated that so many different ways. There's not some secret meaning, and the more devoted a person is doesn't mean they gain some meaning that a scholar wouldn't gain or anybody else reading carefully. Do you believe that? 
Thou shalt not steal. Well, to me, it doesn't really mean that. Well, there you go. You got a problem. Now, did I have some more verses for you, Dana? Yeah, 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18. We have a... Yeah, I think I think I had you... 2 Timothy, or did I give it to somebody else? Well, your, your Bible should be open to it. Go after it. Timothy 17 and 18? Yeah. And their word will eat as does a canker of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. Okay, so we have false teachers named Hymenaeus and Philetus. Their doctrine is named. They said the resurrection already happened, so they had over-realized eschatology, and they're upsetting people in the church. And so when Paul says the firm foundation stands, the Lord knows who are his, the implication is it's not Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now some have come along and said, no, it's a serious sin to correct error in the church. Okay, so somebody writes a book, the book is circulated in churches, including whatever one I was associated with. The book teaches error, so we correct it. Ah, did you go to the person in person who wrote the book? Well, no, I'm just correcting it so you don't listen to it. Well, then you're the sinner. We're going to listen to the false teacher, but not you, because you didn't go to him. Well, for one thing, that's a misuse of the passage, but here's the kicker. Eventually... I did go to some of these guys. I went to Rick Warren, about whom I wrote a book, met him in person. Went to, the, went to the emergent leaders, met them in person. Guess what? It doesn't change a the thing. They still teach here, and they still won't listen to the gospel. Okay. You know, as long as the wolves can have their way of the flock, they don't care how many people go to them. They're not going to repent. And if they won't repent through a public rebuke in the same arena where their stuff was disseminated, they're not going to repent, period. So here we need to warn the flock. Somebody needs to care about the Lord's sheep and not these wealthy false teachers who abscound with the minds, hearts, and wallets of dear saints. Brian, could, uh, could you give Brian the, the mic? Uh, 20 years ago, I was involved in a BSF, Bible Study Fellowship. Uh-huh. You would break down into groups. These were all different people from all different denominations. And you'd have small groups of maybe 10 to 12, 13 people. And it was amazing that out of that amount of people, you would get eight different interpretations uh, of the same verse. Okay. So it just gets perpetuated. Yeah. Perpetuated. So then how do you decide which one's correct? Most of the time they didn't. They didn't decide. Okay. They could try to. But they couldn't. But but people already had in their heads what it meant to them. And there would be one guy over the whole thing who would give what his interpretation was, which came down from a national-type headquarters, a national-type organization. And uh, oftentimes, when I lo- at the time, I didn't really know, okay? 
but looking back now, uh, that wasn't always accurate. Well, using historical grammatical means, we need to believe that the, in the perpiscuity, is that the way you pronounce that word of Scripture that was taught by the Reformers? The Scriptures are clear. The Scriptures are understandable. The fact that here and there is a difficult one doesn't mean that we can't know the meaning of God's Word. God did not write in obscure, cryptic, confused manner, but he wrote clearly, straightforward, and we can understand it. And I think that those who teach have a duty before God and to the congregation to study to show themselves approved. That's what we just saw. Study to show yourself approved. Make sure before you preach the passage, you know what the issues are. You know, if you know the languages, what, what you can learn from the original language, from the context, from the comparison to the gospel, to the moral law of God revealed in the Bible. We can know what the meaning is. And if they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, they have to be devoted to the truth. We need to know what it is. When Peter was preaching, the truth was clear enough to divide 3,000 people from their contemporaries so that they gathered with each other in fellowship. And I haven't found this to be the case yet, that you can't know. I haven't noticed that at all. One thing that's so curious is... Uh, secular uh, culture have no problem saying we can interpret Socrates and Plato and it, and those writings are not or nearly the, as credible. Or the Minnesota tax code. Or the tax code or the IRS tax code, right. You, you can't know. say to the IRS, well, it means something different to you than it does to me. <laughs> you know, if they're going to put you in jail for not paying your taxes, your claim of being, I'm a postmodern taxpayer. <laughs> I believe that the reader determines the meaning, and I read this, and I say I owe nothing to Eric. Eric ran into all of this when he was in seminary, by the way. Yeah, unfortunately. Hey, Bob, you, you probably are going to go to this passage, but um, one passage that really handles this issue of saying, look, God is the author of Scripture. He defines its meaning, and the reader doesn't, is if you turn your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1, and uh, thinking where to begin here, I think we should start in um, verse 16, and I'll just read a little bit. I'll try to make this quick. But the issue in Second Peter is you had false teachers. The false teachers, their whole scam was they claimed the apostles got the interpretation of Scripture wrong. Oh, yeah. And they were saying Jesus really isn't coming back bodily, therefore you can live any way you want. Well, Peter has to correct them that they're not entitled to their own interpretation. And so what he does is he says, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty on the mount, and therefore, we had our interpretation verified. And um, let me just skip ahead then, because I mentioned all that. He says, um, verse 19, this is Second Peter 1. Peter says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now he grounds it in the reasoning. There's a causal for. Here's the reason why you're not entitled to your own interpretation. He says, for no prophecy 
was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the author is ultimately God. He defines the meaning. Then Peter said, we knew from God that our interpretation was correct because on the Mount of Transfiguration, yeah. God said, this is my beloved son. Yeah, no, I was. I don't have that in my notes, so thank you. Yeah. Very pertinent. Well, right. let's just get real here, okay? The absurdity of postmodernity boggles the mind. Because it amounts to you do whatever you want and you don't have to worry. Let's go back to the wilderness wanderings, which the book of Hebrews uses. Bob, can you, for some of us, can you define postmodernity? Oh, postmodernity? It's the idea that we're talking about that rationality is a bad thing, the enlightenment is, was a bad thing, and that everything is a subjective experience and meaning is determined in the mind of the beholder. Yeah, it's relativism in every sense you could think of it. Now, let's think of something. I love how Hebrews uses the wilderness wanderers as, as illustrations of, of eternal spiritual principles. Let's go back to the Mount Sinai and Moses and the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other God before me, saith the Lord. Now, how do they know what that meant? Well, they were eyewitnesses of their deliverance from Egypt. They knew that Moses spoke for God. They went through on dry ground through the Red Sea. They saw, as I said earlier, all the miraculous signs. Now, they had some problem with post-modernity right away. Bear with me here. I am the Lord, thou shalt have no other God before me. Here's Aaron, here's the gold. Well, I just threw it in the fire, out comes a calf. Here's your God that took you out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so in their minds, they can think this golden calf is their God that took them out of Egypt. But objectively, it's not true. It's just what they want. It's what they wished. The golden calf was associated with a big, wild, raucous party. Yahweh is a lawgiver. Okay, so post-modernity and post-modern theology is one huge party in honor of the golden calf. God can't define himself, so we'll define him and we'll say, this is your God that took you out of Egypt, whatever we say. And now you don't have any concept of the moral law of God. Now back to our passage here. I was going to cite Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee in his commentary on Timothy says to abstain from wickedness is to depart from Hymenaeus and Philetus and their teaching. And so this household metaphor reinforces the idea that believers are to turn away from false teaching such as that of Hymenaeus and Philetus. They are to cleanse themselves from false teachings and the behavior associated with them to be vessels of honor and thus sanctified. Sanctified in this context, according to Gordon Fee, means set apart for sacred purposes. 
sanctified ones, which is what saints mean, are prepared for good works that honor Christ. Let's get through at least another slide here, maybe more. Now here, the term piety is used in a good way. Some of the scholars wonder about its use. It's not used by Paul anywhere but in the pastoral epistles. And it's used in Acts to mean religion in any way you want to think about religion. In this, in this case, false religion. But it is used in a positive way in the pastoral epistles. And it's usually translated in the English versions as godliness. But it's almost shocking to the scholars because in the Jewish and Hellenistic Greek world, Eusebian, our word in the Greek, wasn't necessarily a good thing. But it says in 1 Timothy 5, 4, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Here's our word in the verb form, noun being Eusebius. Here, Eusebio, or Eusebio, I mean. And Kittle's Theological Dictionary says, except in the pastorals in Second Peter, the Euseb dash group never refers in the New Testament to Christian faith and life. In Acts 3.12, Peter claims no Eusebia. Cornelius and his soldiers are called Eusebius in Acts 10.2 and 7, religious. Paul uses the verb for worship of Athenians in Acts 17.23. Kittle says the disregard of the New Testament follows the Old Testament, sensing that Eusebia relates to divinity rather than to God and it implies a moralistic view of conduct. On such grounds, Paul speaks of faith, love, and love rather than piety. Now, it is used in a positive sense in Timothy and in Second Peter. And I think that later on, during the biblical times of the Bible writers, the term was so prevalent in the areas where the church went that Paul and Peter rescued the term and thus, the translation godliness is probably a good one. But this doesn't imply that pietism itself is endorsed by God. Now, you see, the pietistic inclination has never left the church. If you look at the history of Roman Catholicism, you have the monastic movement. started with the Desert Fathers, who went out to become mystics in the wilderness. Then more and more people wanted to join them. Then they became cloistered monks. Then they joined, they built monasteries, and then through much pains, some people were allowed, if they could prove they were more pious than ordinary Christians, they could join. Then they became available to women, and then you end up with monks and nuns and so on and so forth. Now, it was shocking to me about eight years ago when Christianity Today, supposedly the evangelical magazine, uh, my dear friend Ken Silva calls it Christianity Astray. <laughs> but anyhow, they have a 
cover, you know, discovering hidden treasures, and here's these evangelicals going back to Rome. And they brag in the article that they're under the guidance of the monks and nuns on their way back to Rome to create a new pietism, a new higher order Christianity that's based on mysticism and not the clear teaching and meaning of Scripture. And it is a lie from Satan that being committed to mystical and pietistic practices makes one more holy than being committed to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Emerges says he can't know what that is. You're arrogant if you think you know what the Bible means. So they say, that's what they told me. So when I quote scripture, it's, it's really weird. When I had a debate with Doug Padgett, were any of you there at the debate with Padgett? Some of you were. It's like playing chess and checkers on the same board. I'd lay out a scripture and say, here's what it says and here's what it means. And he'd be telling stories and because he didn't believe the scripture means what it says. They elevate the Bible by calling it she. She, the Bible, is just one of the members of our community that we interact with. But the community itself has authority over the Bible. And so they just discuss, discuss, discuss it. And the Bible calls that ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Doug Padgett's a winsome, very nice guy. He didn't believe the Bible. And so I just kept laying it out there. Here's the Bible, here's the Bible, here's the Bible. And um, I learned that from Norm Geisler. It doesn't matter if the New Agers don't believe in truth. Preach it to them anyhow. Mike to Eric. No, we need it. We need a mic. Oh, Norm, Norm Geisler's gun. Yeah. Okay. In 1989, we had we brought Norm Geisler in with his apologetics committee that I was part of, and he was talking about the New Age. And somebody asked him, they say, well, uh, Norm, the New Agers don't believe in truth, so now what are you going to do? You have all this apologetics that's grounded in truth, they don't believe in truth. He said, let me give you an illustration. An armed... No, a robber comes through your window into your bedroom to rob you, but you have a loaded gun under your pillow. So you pull the gun out from under your pillow and aim it at the robber saying, stop. And the robber says, I don't believe in guns. (laughs) And Norm said, pull the trigger anyhow. He doesn't have to believe in guns. (laughs) It will still have its effect of stopping him. Now, he used that, and I've never forgotten that. That was from 1989. We live in a universe as created in God's image in which the only way for humans to survive is to use our rational minds. We can be angry about that, we can reject it, we can philosophically try to refute it, but we can't escape it. Human beings are rational creatures. The truth appeals to rational creatures. And in 
the book that I wrote about this, I have illustrations, many different ones, proving that you can't escape that. And that you have to live by it, whether you like it or not. One that I used in my debate and I used in my book is the postmodern mushroom hunt. Do you remember that? Okay, we're going to have a mushroom hunt, and we're going to go out in the woods. The woods contain edible mushrooms and poisonous ones that will kill you. Uh, edible ones that are very good and nutritious. Now, we're going to go on the hunt, but we're going to go in two different groups. One group is going to be the rationalist hunters, and for that group, we're bringing in an expert in mushrooms. He's going to describe the characteristics of edible mushrooms, how they differ from poisonous ones. He's going to show you examples. And he's going to guide you on the path so you don't get into poisonous mushrooms. The other group is going to be the emergent postmodern hunters. <laughs> They're going to meditate, become one with the universe, and then go on their mushroom hunt. How many people would want to join the New Agers. I don't think anybody would, because you would die. And so these postmodern New Age, the emergent, whatever you want to call it, are all engaged and have to engage in hypocrisy, or they wouldn't stay alive long enough to write their books. They have to distinguish food from poison. Yes, Dina. There are old mushroom hunters and bold mushroom hunters, but there are no old, bold mushroom hunters. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think the mother goddess is telling me to eat this one. Yes, Mike. I've got one other example here I just heard. Uh, and uh, it was a question and answer series is where I heard this for, for RC and their conference. And uh, someone was struggling with a postmodern friend or family member that really didn't believe there was such a thing as sin. And he says, how, he asked RC, how can, how can I convince him that there's sin? And RC said, steal his wallet. Yeah. <laughs> You're a that, sinner. You got to go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I guess if you steal his wallet, and I, I figure that's not a sin, that's not wrong. I mean, who are you to tell me, right? Yeah. That that's well, a sin. The, guess what? It all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Very good, Mike. Guess what? Go back to the Garden of Eden, and what did Satan have to question? Has God said? You can eat of all the trees. Don't worry about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, you'll die. Satan said, you will become enlightened. But you're enlightened on your way to hell. Spiritual death. Christy. So I'm just kind of wondering, we can have all this knowledge and it can be accurate. How do we then protect ourselves and one another from pietism? How do we keep from okay. that knowledge turning into pietism. Okay, let me define pietism. Let's see what my next, I got five minutes here. Here it is. Here's pietism, all right? That's what we're going to talk about. Now, it talks here in 2 Timothy 3, 5, holding to a form of godliness. That word eusebia can mean piety. Although they have denied his power, avoid such men as these. So here we have eusebia. Eusebia 
is a, a teaching and a practice. Remember, Hymenaeus and Philetus were teachers, and Paul warns about them. And the idea is that there is a higher order version of Christianity that's reserved for some elite people that have the secret. Okay? And so that's really what we're talking about is grounding everything in objective, rational scripture. It's some higher order. They have the secret. And you have to be an initiate or somebody in on the secret to share in the higher order version of Christianity. One thing pietists cannot possibly tolerate is even the idea of being ordinary. That's why, Dan, I love that audio that you sent me. Now everybody's going to want to hear it. An ordinary church, and John MacArthur, ordinary, devoted themselves to apostles, teaching, prayer, breaking of bread, fellowship. It's ordinary. And I've said in many different ways, it's an extraordinary thing to be an ordinary Christian. It's our escape from the ordinary that leads us to pietism, a higher order, secret information, Gnostics, lovers of wisdom, philosophia, according to the philosophy of man. When I was a pietist, I was loath to ever think of myself as an ordinary Christian. And we were told by our leadership that ordinary Christians get education. That's educational Babylon. Ordinary Christians have jobs. That's economic Babylon. Ordinary Christians have churches. That's religious Babylon. If you want to join the kingdom of God, you got to leave Babylon behind and join us. And we're going to have the kingdom of God now. So just like, uh, in, a, in a sense, Hymenaeus and Philetus, there's an over-realized eschatology. We're going to have now what's only reserved for the eschaton. We're going to have a realization of the kingdom that ordinary Christians don't have. It's a form of piety, but it's false. It's interesting how the the group I was with ultimately came apart at the seams. It last, I was there for five years, and it, on the fifth year is when it all came apart at the seams. On the surface, some thought it was because of a moral failure of the leader, but it wasn't a very serious moral failure. What really brought it down was when the wife of the founder went into Christian feminism. We were commanded and demanded that we all go to the Bill Gothard seminar. Our pietistic group was a top-down, trickle-down spirituality. The leader tells, the sub-leaders tells us, somebody is commanding you. We were part of the shepherding movement. You couldn't go on vacation without approval from your shepherd. There was this heavy-handed, authoritative, you do what we say or you're not a good Christian. 
now, in that context, in 1980, when the wife of the leader went into Christian feminism, it blew up the whole thing because she was rejecting the whole top-down headship doctrine that kept the thing afloat. And then people said, we're not going to listen to you. If your own wife is going into Christian feminism, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to go our own way. We're going to get a job, and we're not even going to feel guilty about it. Think about it. The Bible commands us to work, but no, no, if you have a job, you're in economic Babylon. It's amazing how anybody else, you don't have to show your hand. You ever been caught in a false religion? And they're commanding you and demanding you and telling you, what do you get out of it? They take your money. We were only allowed to have $5 at any one time. They take your money. What do you get out of it? The feeling that you're a superior Christian. Why did people join monasteries? Why did they become nuns? Why did they take oaths of poverty? Why did they abstain from marriage or refuse marriage, which we'll see in a bit? So there's always some hook, and you are the better Christian, and everybody else is the bad one. So my dear, beloved friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to offer you what the Bible offers. You can be an ordinary Christian. Ordinary. What's your main claim to fame? What makes you special? I'm a sinner saved by grace. I can't believe God allowed me into his family, but he did through the gospel. It's ordinary. Ordinary church, ordinary Christians, ordinary faith, and an extraordinary God with an extraordinary gospel. We can't control you with that. So I'm the, this is my day, the confessions of a former pietist. <laughs> I've got about half a minute. Let me quickly quote Gordon Fee. They like the invisible, like the visible expressions, the ascetic practices, endless discussions of religious trivia, thinking themselves to be obviously righteous because they were obviously religious but they thereby deny the essential power of the Christian Eusebia piety since they engage in so many of the religious attitudes and practice, practices that characterize the pagan world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, help us to be satisfied with being devoted to the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles and being ordinary Christians. Thank you, dear Lord, and we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.